You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky. This is episode 55, and today we're going to be talking about mining and extractivism. And I'm excited to be talking with Vicenza Sherefache. Um, she is a researcher, activist, and artist from Northern Ireland who is interested in anti or post extractivism, gender and environmental justice. Um, Vincenza, thank you so much for being here. Um, we actually met through my graduate program at NUI Galway in um, Southern, not Southern Ireland, but Republic of Ireland. Um, so I appreciate you um, taking the time to share what you've already talked with me a lot about. And um, could you kind of start by just telling us what led you to this line of work and your experiences in researching and working with the communities affected by extractivism? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for, for having me on. Um, yeah, I guess um, I always kind of like start with like going way, way back. Um, I've always kind of been interested in the environment and ecological kind of ways of living. Um, I grew up on kind of um, a small kind of sustainable farm. So my family was kind of thinking that way, really. But um, it was really um, whenever I was in like sixth form of um, high school, so like the last two years of high school, um, that I got involved with the campaign um, in solidarity with um, people in the Niger Delta who were resisting um, oil extraction by Shell. Um, and I suppose that was kind of like my first time uh, thinking about those connections between environmentalism and human rights and um, social justice as well. So it was kind of like um, a big moment in how I think about all of these things. Um, and that, yeah, that really kind of inspired me to follow follow this kind of track. And I went to um, uni and I studied kind of these topics in human geography and anthropology. Um, and I was really involved um, in activism at that time as well. So I was really involved in like the climate justice movement in the UK, um, which really, um, influenced the way I think about these things as well. Um, yeah, and then after uni, I was kind of, um, I worked for a few different um, environmental social justice NGOs and collectives. Um, and then I started my PhD um, in 2019 back at NUIG where we met. Um, and I was looking at, and I am still looking at, um, communities resisting a big gold mine in the north of Ireland. Um, in the Sparrow Mountains. Um, and I suppose, yeah, I was also really interested in this topic because uh, before I came to start my PhD, I was living and working in Cyprus um, with a small environmental NGO, and we were accompanying communities that were resisting gold mining over there as well. So I kind of um, saw what was happening there and saw what was happening back home. And it is such a global story, you know, you see the same tactics and the same sort of patterns playing out all over the world, but obviously they're very different in these different contexts. So I thought it'd be interesting to explore that. So that's kind of what led me to the, the research that I'm, I'm doing now. Yeah, I, I have to admit when I first met you, um, I think you were a guest speaking in one of our courses about your experiences um, with extractivism and you had us read um, an article about resistance in, I think it was Norway or one of those countries and um, it referenced a lot of the work in the Sparrens and I honestly was like, I had no idea that there was extraction still being done to that extent in 
European countries, you know, Northern European countries, and that there was such heavy resistance. And, um, you know, I felt embarrassed, one, for my ignorance, but also it did make me realize, like you said, what a global issue this is and how um, people from every part of the world, whether you're, you know, way up north um, <laughs> herding reindeer or you're, you know, in the Amazon resisting any anything, you know, any kind of extraction logging. Um, it's amazing how this can connect people. And you've actually done a lot of work with other communities around the world. Would you mind just speaking to some of that real quick? Because I know you just recently had um, hosted some people from the Americas um, and did an amazing program with them as well. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think, yeah, because it is such a global story, like actually linking up um, in solidarity with other frontline communities is so important and so strong. And I think that's what makes resistance movements so strong. Um, so, yeah, we, we've been really lucky, like in the work I've been doing um, kind of as an activist researcher um, has been a lot of like setting up exchanges with um, communities and resistance um, around the world and um, the community in the Sparrows is doing that so well like they've linked up with like communities in like so many countries I can't even list them all like it's so huge like Honduras, Indonesia, um, Norway, Sweden, Spain, uh, Turkey, Greece, um, Canada um, the US like all over so um, that's been really inspiring um, to me as well but um, yeah so like two of the big projects that I was lucky to be involved in organizing through my PhD and through my involvement in the campaign the first one was we had the Zapatistas who came from Mexico um, in October last year so that was a year ago it's hard to believe but um, that was a really inspirational visit we had a delegation of seven really young Zapatista women who came and shared their story with the community and we had a lot of like community sharing events and um, eating together and yeah experiencing uh, each other's cultures and things and then in the summertime uh, we had a visit by uh, water protectors from uh, Dakota who were involved in the Standing Rock protests um, and that was actually meant to be a much bigger visit but unfortunately because of Covid we had to scale that back but we're hoping that it will take place um, before June this year um, and that that collective that we're organizing in is called Making Relatives um, so it's really about kind of like yeah questioning the way we see the world and um, yeah making relatives with each other and the more than human world again so it was lovely we had um, Emma Minx who's a water protector um, from Dakota came over and then we also had um, an activist from Chile called um, Ramon come over as well who works with the Yes to Life Nota Mining Network so yeah it was great we had two weeks full of um, activities and visits and events and walks and <laughs> all, all kinds of things so it was um, it was great to connect with them. Yeah I think um, events like that and forming those bonds um, is is great for uh you know, you, like you said, just building solidarity and knowing that we're not alone in this, because a lot of times I think people can feel isolated when they're resisting whatever environmental thing, you know, is, is happening in their community. And um, knowing that others have done it before, have been successful or um, have learned lessons, you know, the hard way that they can teach. Um, and also, I think um, it kind of shows, you know, the man or whoever <laughs> we want to, uh, you know, fight, say that we're fighting, um, that, you know, we are actually bigger than, than they want us to believe. Cause I think they like to 
make us think that we're small pockets that can't do much and <laughs> together we can oh, so uh, totally totally and you see that's how they delegitimize movements as well you know that they're just these like little uh, like nimby place-based <laughs> kind of you know um people who object to everything you know but that's so like not the case in what I've seen and experienced you know I think mm -hmm. these like rural um often very peripheralized communities you know because um you see mining really impact the peripheries of Europe, you know, you see Scandinavia and Ireland and Iberian Peninsula, so Spain and Portugal are kind of like mm -hmm. the hotspots in this mining boom happening in Europe at the minute. Um, so yeah, it's like uh, these communities that are already kind of marginalised. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely there's so much strength in connecting up and yeah, yeah, realising that like there's like a huge network of people and we can draw so much strength and learn so much from that as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, well, I am sad I didn't get to come to this year's event, but I'm hoping to be back in Ireland maybe next year or the next time yeah, you do it. So you'll get over. Yeah, that would be lovely. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about your work, and I know you're still in the process of doing your research, but um, I've I've looked at some of your papers, and I know that you focus heavily on ecofeminism and femis, feminist political ecology. So, can you explain to our listener um, what this means and how this might differ from the more quote unquote mainstream um, way of looking at the world? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, I guess for me, like it's a really useful frame or way of looking at the world whenever we're talking about um, extractivism and these sort of like big concepts because it really looks at like power I think you know um, and I hope you can understand my Nordy accent when I say that <laughs> or power um, you know I think that um, yeah it's a way of um, thinking like much deeper about these things so like whenever I talk about extractivism from this perspective ecofeminist feminist political ecology I don't mean that like I'm just looking at the physical removal of like minerals from the earth I'm talking about um much deeper ways of knowing the world of seeing the world how we relate to each other and how we relate to the more than human world um and how it's actually deeply rooted in these big massive systems of oppression like colonialism and white supremacy and patriarchy and uh, capitalism all of these things these big interrelated um systems you know extractivism is very much like a part of that you know so for me that's why it's it's really really useful and i suppose like at a very basic level how I understand ecofeminism or feminist political ecology is like they try to draw connections away um, certain groups of marginalized people are treated and the environment is treated. So both those kind of categories are almost treated like the other or um, something that we can, you know, objectify to extract from. So we like kind of extract from women's free unpaid care work the same way we extract from a mountain for like mining, you know, or um, p racialized people's uh, labor um, is extracted, you know, the same way we um, extract from the earth. So I think um, these ways of thinking are trying to draw those connections between all of those things. And I think it helps as well because it shows that um, we're not talking about just like a single issue. It's not just about mining or fracking or an oil pipeline. It's about, you know, a huge range of social justice issues. It's really about bringing all of those things together, you know, because at the root, they're all connected through those big systems. 
I hope that makes sense. But <laughs> yeah, so I guess it sounds like um, really the way we take nature for granted or take advantage of nature historically, um, and I say we as in like industrialized, you know, um, kind of Eurocentric societies tend to kind of just, like you said, say nature is there for the taking. It's there for us to use and we don't have to give anything back. Yeah. Um, that That's kind of the mindset that we also apply towards these marginalized groups like care workers and other races and et cetera, et cetera. So totally. Um, yeah, yeah. And and as well, like they they say it's very much, you know, this enlightenment time, you know, whenever you see the rise of the Industrial Revolution and the scientific revolution and we start to see this real like Eurocentric way of thinking about the world come in. Like they really like critique that and say that's where our current crisis has its roots because we start to see nature as external from us and kind of just something that's out there, you know, um, that we can use for our own needs or whatever, rather than seeing us as part of it, you know, um, you know, as like, yeah, we are nature as well, you know, so I think yeah. they're trying to like reweave that kind of divide that's been been really damaging in a whole load of ways, you know. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the resistance to um, mining and extraction and all these harmful activities to nature in general um, is more than just you're polluting the water or you're you know making people sick it's it's really like you're this is saying that it's part of a larger problem where um it's it's not just that one instance it's happening all over the world and we need to rethink how we treat nature in general so that we don't just keep repeating this cycle totally yeah totally yes yeah. i think it's part of like a much bigger story you know of like yeah extractivism i think can mean yeah like mining but it can also mean like we can have extractive relations between people as well you know when we like even in research uh yeah you can like you know use communities to like further your career you know if you just kind of mm. like <laughs> bomb in and do a few interviews and then like leave again you know so I think that's something I've been really mindful of throughout my process of doing the PhD is you know how do we do non-extractive research as well yeah. you know how do we build connections and relationships and make sure that our research is useful for the communities we work with too mm -hmm. not just taking yeah totally yeah there needs to be some reciprocity there <laughs> yeah yeah um well you know, this made me wonder, since this is all kind of based on this economic model that does take nature as a resource for granted, what are some other models that you think might work better? Or is there, you know, something out there that that has, I don't know if scientifically proven is the word, but has been put forward by other researchers as, you know, this this might actually be better for us overall? Yeah, totally. Like, I'm really inspired by this, like, term post-extractivism, and that's really coming out of Latin America, the place, I think, that has, you know, suffered the, the most from this extractive model um, over time, you know, where you see this huge wealth transfer from there to, like, the global north, you know, um, and there's lots of amazing movements and critical thinkers there that are thinking through these really big questions, Um and yeah, like part of that whole moving to like a world beyond extractivism means looking at different economic models, like you said, you know, so I'm really inspired by the degrowth model as well. So that's kind of saying, you know, that we can't just keep going with this need for constant growth because that's actually what's causing all of our interconnected crises. 
Um, so we need to actually um, degrow in the global north. Um, so like consume less and, um, you know, so we're able to redistribute the wealth that's in the world and the resources um, because it's, we're, we're living in such an unequal time, you know. Um, but there's also, you know, concepts like buen vivir as well, which means like living well or like the good life, you know, which kind of focuses on social and ecological well-being rather than GDP. Um, and I think that's really inspiring as well. Um, and then there's also the Rights of Nature movement, which I think is very inspirational. And I know that the movements in Ireland have been using that really um, strongly at the minute. So it's kind of the idea of giving legal rights to um, non-human nature. So like almost like the way corporations have personhood in the law. So like a river could be have personhood or a mountain or um, like a, a bog landscape or something like that, you know. So um, that like yeah yeah it's sort of like redefining how we sort of relate to the world and, and see see the world as well so yeah I think there's like there's lots of different examples out there and I think there's loads of different alternatives and um I think that resistance movements really show us that there there are lots of different ways of relating to each other and being in the world and um yeah I think that that's really inspirational and what we really need to focus on as well yeah yeah, it's it's hard to uh, imagine a world without capitalism, right? I mean, that's kind of been the 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 main um, economic mindset for so many years, and okay. mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's like uh, bringing these things up is almost taboo. But like you said, you know, we have um, caused so much damage, and just like thinking about the earth only has so much res stuff, resources. Totally, so it's yeah. like, yeah, it's not like legitimately not even possible to continue consuming at this rate yeah. um, because we're going to run out of things to make the stuff with, you know, there's not yeah. going to be oil to make the plastic and metal to make whatever. And mm -hmm. um, especially, you know, as the global population continues to grow and people continue to, each person consumes more and more than they did 20, 40 years ago. Um, it's just not, mathematically possible <laughs> um and so so yeah this this like focus on consumerism is really i think the root of a lot of the problems we're seeing and it's really resulted in more pressure for mining and other extractive industries um so you know knowing this like how do these activities negatively affect the surrounding environments and communities and um i guess you know to build on that you've kind of mentioned this, but what communities are affected the most by this? Mm, yeah, I think, yeah, definitely this um, extractive mode of development, like it's, um, yeah, it's so like pervasive and, you know, like you say, like, you know, we can't like physically, like we can't like, you know, the laws of science mean we can't, you know, just keep extracting and extracting. And you see now, like it's, it's like such a colonial thing. It's like, oh, now we're going to go to the seabed to mine or we're going to go to outer space, you know? So it's like always these new frontiers looking for the last kind of, you know, bit to, to extract from. Um, and I would say, you know, that it's, it's, really it's like communities in the global south and indigenous communities that are like first and worst impacted by this even though like 
they aren't the ones causing the problem like at all um you know like under like climate justice obviously that's you know very much the the narrative which is so important um but yeah like i said it's also the peripheral kind of communities within the core so like you know the edges of europe like um ireland and, and scandinavia that are are suffering but i think that yeah like um this type of industrial like mega mining you know it's it's so damaging like um uh, yeah ecologically you know it's um uh, it's even it's hard to go into like all of the details it's just like so mind-boggling you know the amount of like heavy metals that are used in like gold extraction for example the like the leaching um the yeah the particles in the air that cause like so much health issues um the the water pollution the, oh yeah just <laughs> they go on and on but but it's it's also you know the fact that they um impact so strongly on the the communities living around the area you know and you see how the communities like divide and conquer as well so they create these huge like social divisions within communities um and like so many different like gendered impacts as well like you know there's all these different um different ways that these impacts are felt based on people's identities as well um and yeah so i think that um in terms of like yeah yeah like then the, like the narrative is very much like that we need all the time more and more and more but we we know we have we have so much resources and wealth in the world like already um and i think the question really is about like redistribution and about like yeah finding um a fair way to, to find another system of how we you know share that wealth and ensure like well-being within planetary boundaries you know um there's also the great theory i don't know if you know that one donut economics by kate uh rashford it's amazing it's like um imagine the economy like a donut so like the outside is the like kind of like environmental limits that you don't want to exceed and then the inside ring is like um social well-being so you obviously don't want like um eco austerity where like people can't afford um to you know um have energy or to like have a home or to go about like their livelihoods you know um so it's kind of like balancing those two things yeah it is hard to um reconcile that you know we do want a certain quality of life um yeah. but not at the expense of the planet and in certain communities and mm -hmm. um sacrificing you know whole totally. parts of the earth to to have that for some people um and if you do look at you know, I know in the U.S., and this is probably the case um, in Europe and other parts of the world, um, a lot of times you'll notice where they place, you know, industrial power plants or mining facilities or whatever, it is very close to certain communities that they consider marginalized or less than, like communities of color or indigenous communities or lower income communities. And um, that also happens to be where you see, you know, more instances of health problems and lower educational, you know, attainment mm -hmm. and things like that, because um, a lot of times those communities are written off and uh, they even, you know, I think when the pipelines, a lot of the pipelines were going through, they specifically rerouted them through more affluent communities out of the way, miles and miles, so that they could go through indigenous land. And it's like, mm -hmm. this is very obvious what you're doing, but. Totally, people... yeah, it's environmental racism, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And when you think about like the uranium mines on indigenous lands in the US and like how many like 
birth defects and like you know like health impacts that that causes and miscarriages and things like mm-hmm. it's it's really scary and yeah I think in the Irish context as well we have a lot of um issues around like uh, travelers rights mm-hmm. you know um the traveling community is really treated like in horrendous ways like and that you know they're um they're almost like reservations you know their halting sites are always placed beside like an incinerator or a landfill dump or um these kind of like big projects um so yeah you definitely you see that everywhere it's it's really it really is a huge issue mm-hmm. and then it kind of creates the stigma that these communities are um dirty or unhealthy or whatever unsafe because it's like a self-perpetuating thing you know okay yeah so we've talked about kind of who is you know most affected by this stuff but obviously like everybody overall is going to be affected by totally impacts, mm-hmm. climate change etc cetera, etc cetera. and I, I think that's you know if, if people can't get to the point where they care about others at least they can see like this is going to affect me eventually <laughs> totally yeah totally yeah exactly we live in such an interconnected world you know in these these like chemicals or like air particles or whatever they're not going to respect you know boundaries or borders of countries you know so yeah mm-hmm. definitely <laughs> Well, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to talk about, um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to think of creative solutions to address the climate crisis. And a lot of times that requires resource extraction, especially of like heavy metals and minerals. And, um, you know, those, the mining of those things causes um, a whole other set of environmental problems while we're trying to solve <laughs> the emissions problem. So we're kind of trading one set for another. Um, so do you think that we can, you know, balance these issues or, um, maybe find solutions that don't cause an increase in extraction while also, you know, enabling us to use renewable energy or EVs or whatever the solution might be? Mm, Yeah, totally. And I think, yeah, like I always like have to stay, say before, like I say anything on this, that like, I absolutely do think we need to transition to renewables. There's no question about that. You know, it's just very much how that is done and who is impacted by that and you know where the the power is in all of these things and in these transitions is really really important and um yeah like there's a saying you know that a just transition has to be a post-extractive transition as well you know um because i think what's happening at the minute is that we're like yes we are increasing renewables but what's happening is they're just being added on top of fossil fuel use and extraction you know because we're in a system where we have this huge increase all the time in energy demand and and energy use you know because we're in this like constant growth kind of trajectory so um what we're like actually doing is we're not switching one for another at the moment we're just like you know we're just adding it on top to create more energy so um I we're think still consuming we, just as much but with yeah, a different power source exactly exactly yeah so I think that we can't just switch you know from fossil fuel based economy to a renewable based economy like in the current system because it'll leave all of those like inequalities and sacrificed communities like there and untouched like and unquestioned um so I think yeah like it really is like about the system that kind of goes underneath it and you know they say as well like it's great saying you know we can't mine our way out of the climate crisis you know and if we want real like 
real change and real like deep transformation like it means like adopting this like degrowth or you know other ways of um running the economy or thinking about the economy or you know like um thinking about like democratically owned renewable energy or like um you know co-ops community-owned co-ops of renewable energy and things like that so that the energy um that we're producing is actually going to like communities well-being and need as well because what we see in Ireland at the minute is and I think that this is replicated around the world that whenever you have this corporate capture of the transition um we see like the these huge wind farms being put up around Ireland but the energy produced there isn't going towards local communities it's actually being used for the data centers of Amazon and Facebook and Google, which are all located in Ireland um, because of the climate and lots of different things. And they're consuming huge amounts of our water. They're not paying taxes, all these kind of things. And um, if you want to read more on that, uh, Patrick Bressanen um, from Maynooth University does amazing work on that and how that's a form of extractivism, you know? So I really recommend uh, looking into that. So yeah, I think it really is a question of like, um who who's it for and who who's losing out who's benefiting from from all of these things i think that's kind of what political ecology tries to ask the questions of you know um it's not so simple as you know um yes yeah, switching from fossil fuels to renewables <laughs> yeah it's kind of like the um people who argue well if I consider continue to consume the same amount, but I'm recycling, then I'm okay because I'm recycling. And it's like, no, the whole point is to consume less and reduce the amount of resources you're using, not to turn them into something else because recycling is imperfect as well. But I don't know, that that's kind of what comes to mind for me. It's like, we're still, yeah, we're shifting how we get the power, but yeah, we're, we're not completely. Totally. Yeah. yeah, it's that idea of like eco-efficiency or like ecological modernization. The idea that, you know, we can just um, like tweak, make these little tweaks, you know, to the system, like, um, and then, but can carry on with the status quo, like carry on with like increasing the need for more and more and more, but just do it in a slightly different way. You know, I think that, yeah, yeah that's not going to cut it in our current crisis you know like the the scale is so massive and we need really really drastic yeah alternatives <laughs> yeah and i i think a big part of the problem is people just aren't willing to give up their lifestyles right like people have gotten so comfortable with mm -hmm. um being able to push a button and get things auto delivered or being able to go to the store and having 50 options of disposable whatever <laughs> um and yeah. it's it's like how do we shift people's behaviors and willingness to give up a little so that that other people in the world can have a little better you know like I don't want to say we're living like kings and queens you know mm -hmm. in in uh, the global north but we comparatively you know we do enjoy I think a lot more um, things when you consider that half the resources we have came from the global south and they're living <laughs> in much yeah. worse conditions a lot of times yeah totally I think that like yeah reflection on our lives is really important as well but i also think you know that 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 it, there is like 
um, like a small minority of people, even within the global north, that are consuming the most resources and are taking the most flights and are actually, you know, like, um, yeah, yeah, actually really the ones that like we really need to change <laughs> their behavior of, you know, um, whether it's like, you know, the billionaires or even, you know, the, the you know, the one percent like this class that um, is really, really um, ca causing a lot of these issues you know and it's not to say that we shouldn't like absolutely you know um do our best in our in our life as well but I, yeah i think we're so almost like we're locked into this fossil fuel economy and a lot of the time it's not like um our fault you know like it's um it really does like yeah require a huge system change to allow people to make better decisions and um yeah better choices and as well like you know we, we're stuck in in systems where we're like um there's so much like advertising and all these things telling us to consume and telling us, you know, that that's going to make us feel better or, you know, um, be happier. And and it and it's not, you know, we like have really unhappy societies, you know, like really unequal societies as well. Um, and I think that, yeah, actually that this um, switch to like a more like non-extractive or more ecological way of living could actually like bring huge benefits in terms of like uh, building up communities that have been like broken down and turned people into like these individual you know consumers you know rather than part of like a vibrant democracy and society you know I think that um, yeah that we need to focus on the, the benefits you know having more local healthy sustainable food systems you know like that would bring huge benefits and it would like be part of the the climate crisis solutions as well so yeah i think um we definitely need to focus on the benefits it would bring bring us yeah yeah for sure and um just to go back to something you mentioned um a little bit ago uh i next month we're actually i'm actually going to be talking with someone who is going to speak about his research in the um mass you know consumption of energy mm -hmm. by the data centers and resources mm -hmm. um and they had an exhibit at the galway arts festival and um it was really interesting it's called entanglement and they look at kind of the amount of resources and energy i think he, i think the statistic was like 20 or 30 percent of ireland's energy output goes to these data centers now because yeah. they're so prevalent and you know the they're so quote unquote business friendly but um <laughs> to bring yeah, yeah. these these companies in but then they suck the the grid dry and it's it's going to be an interesting conversation so yeah well, that'll be brilliant yeah because they are like vampires you know they are literally like, <laughs> yeah sucking the lifeblood out yeah. of the, the country you know like yeah yeah that'll be a good follow-up to this because like you said it is another form of extractivism mm -hmm. um, kind of taking advantage of a country that's um you know i guess more willing to give up uh, its own energy independence for these other organizations so totally yeah and i think it's totally tied to like like our like economy like in Ireland north and south it's so neoliberal and it's so like all about attracting foreign direct investment you know as a way mm -hmm. to develop like it's so focused on that and like you know it means actively inviting in extractive industries like with what I'm looking at mining but whether it's data centers or like corporate wind farms whatever um and yeah letting them like do whatever they want you know like rolling back environmental legislation like mm -hmm. lowering taxes whatever you know um to attract them in and you know like i mean the people's lives aren't you know this type of 
development isn't making people's lives better you know it's actually like making things much much worse yeah making it harder to find housing and driving up the cost of living and all that stuff totally, yeah <laughs> yeah it's all so interconnected like yeah yeah um yeah well that'll be an interesting follow-up to this conversation i think mm -hmm. and um yeah it's one more example how, of how everything's related and how <laughs> all these fights um, <laughs> can work together. Um, so uh, kind of going back to your, you know, work and uh, you've mentioned that one of the communities that is um, the most affected by these extractive industries is um, women or caretakers. Uh, so can you give some examples of you know how women have been resisting this destructive extraction um, throughout the world and um, some success stories maybe some things to give us some hope uh, if, if you have some of those as well <laughs> yeah yeah no I think I think it's really interesting like I know there's there's a group um mainly based in the US but like all over the Americas called the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network and they do um amazing work looking at like uh, women's resistance to extractivism but I think that um, yeah around the world you see this kind of like um, dynamic where women really are on the front lines of resistance um, and there's loads of different like theories on I guess why that is but I guess I would sort of say it's because the current system is like hurting hurting them you know and they're they they see these interconnections more readily you know um, and and in many cases, like women talk about um, the care for the environment being an extension of the care work that they are already doing, you know, because a livable, healthy environment is also like <laughs> what we need to to live our lives. Um, and yeah, yeah. And also, like if, if, if around the world, like more women are doing the care work um, and involved in social reproduction. So like all of the things that actually sustain societies and life, whether that's like cooking or um, childcare, elderly care, um, education, healthcare, all of these um, things that women do mainly for free um, all the time around the world. Um, they're obviously going to be the first ones to notice whenever the water becomes polluted or the children become sick or, you know, the, the material reality of these projects kind of kicks kicks home or whatever um, and I suppose that does look different in every context you know all around the world as well and I think that um, like yeah I don't think we should say that women are either like the victims or the saviors of the situation you know because that's quite like simplistic you know I think there's like a lot of stuff going on and I know that there's there's huge amounts of like people of all genders involved in these movements and doing amazing things but um, yeah I think that there is definitely a gendered element to it and um yeah and often you see women standing up and they're also kind of like challenging patriarchal kind of cultures and norms as well like they're, so they're like entering like the public sphere and speaking out and stepping out of maybe traditional gender roles and there's like a lot of like sort of transformational stuff that goes on i think with inside um resistance movements which is which is really really amazing and uh, yeah there's like I think there's loads of examples of like um amazing stories from around, like I mean Standing Rock for example you know that was very much like youth and um women led led by indigenous women and youth um and I think that's such an inspirational um story as well um and yeah and I also think about um Linda Sullivan who's an amazing 
um, earth and water defender from the North of Ireland, who I'm lucky to work with as well. Um, she lived for years in Peru um, with communities resisting um, the Conga mine, which was a huge gold mine, one of like, supposed to be one of the biggest gold mines in the world. I mean, it was like a billion dollar project. It was massive. And the community resistance was so strong that they actually managed to stop it, you know? So I think that, you know, there are these examples where these movements work and they they do bring about real change, you know? Um, and as well, the community I worked with in Cyprus, that was very much led by um, two amazing young women who lived in the village, um, who really had to force their way into like the corridors of power and be taken seriously. And they were told constantly, oh, they're just hysterical village women. And, um, you know, they, they had to face so much misogyny and like patriarchal um, values and norms to, to even do their activism or their protection of their home and their their water and their air and they and they managed to stop the um company as well um with with a huge like you know um group of local people and connections to um other ngos and groups and collectives um all working in connection but yeah it was very much led again by by women and that was really inspirational to see i think yeah, they like to paint us as hysterical so that no one will listen <laughs> when totally, they don't yeah. like what we're saying. <laughs> totally. And you see that so much, even with like Greta Thunberg, like the way they talk mm -hmm. about her, like as if she's like, they focus on her like mental illness and, you know, she's too loud. And it's, mm -hmm. it's like the same language that you, you see yeah. like for hundreds or of years. Or how we look or what we're wearing and like the things yeah. that don't matter when the message is the point. Yeah. So exactly. Just from that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I'll add, um, I thought of this as you were talking, um, Mary Robinson wrote a great book called Climate Justice That's that right. gives yeah. examples of um, mostly female-led resistance to you know environmental issues, but there are a few men highlighted as well who have done some yeah. great things, and she's the former president of Ireland, so um, she's become a big activist in this space, so if people are yeah. interested in learning more about that, that's a great, it's a very short read too, so. Yeah, and she has an amazing podcast series as well. Yes. I'm sure you, you've heard it, um, Mothers of Invention. Yes, I love it's it. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and she interviews like a different kind of eco-feminist hero. Like, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think it's it hasn't had a new season in a while, but um, it's her, Maeve Higgins, and another um, person from Ireland that I can't think of the name, but it's really funny too, and it's it's very yeah feminist-focused podcast. So yeah, it's, really it's brilliant. Yeah, really recommend <laughs> Yeah, well, this has been um, a lot to think about and, um, you know, great information. Uh, is there anything else you would want to share with our listeners before we move on? Any um, resources you might share for folks who are looking to learn more? Yeah, sure. I think there's a lot of great like activist collectives and groups that are working on this stuff, which is and they produce a lot of great reports and materials and documentaries, you know, that um, are really accessible and like help us kind of understand these big issues. Like so the first one would be the Yes to Life Node Mining Network. I would really recommend checking them out there, Global Network. Um, we can, who I mentioned, the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network are amazing. Um, and War on Want as well um, are another group who kind of work on global justice issues, but like focus on these big questions um, too. And yeah, and also um, if you're interested in sort of like the ecofeminist kind of stuff within Ireland, Sinead Mercier is a wonderful 
um, eco-feminist, environmentalist, um, a just transition expert <laughs> who's written a brilliant book called The Men Who Eat Ringforts, um, which is really fascinating and kind of taps into all of these kind of like deeper questions about um, how we see the world and how can we move to sort of like a decolonial environmentalism in Ireland, which I think is really, really cool. <laughs> Yeah, those are great resources. And I actually meant to ask you, um, do you have any advice you would offer folks looking to get involved in um, opposing these extractive activities, either locally or globally, other than obviously looking into some of these organizations, any best practices or just things you've learned along the way? Yeah, I suppose it's one of the things that I kind of like um, learned from the um, Zapatista movement, um, and they call it bringing Zapatismo home. Um, because I guess a lot of people from around the world and from leftist movements or interested in sort of like ecological justice would have traveled to Mexico, to Chiapas, to see what they were doing there and like find out, you know, um, maybe do research on that or do interviews and those kind of things. And I think they always said, you know, that, um, you know, that's that's good too. That's good learning. But also like look at your own home and look, look what's happening. Um, around you because these projects are everywhere you know like they're across the globe it's a global story and um, what we I think we can do that's really powerful is show solidarity with the frontline communities in our areas um, and like see how, how can we like you know learn from them or um, amplify their voices or you know um, see if we can get involved even in some solidarity actions um, yeah yeah obviously led by them but um, yeah yeah in support and um, yeah trying to help you know with with those because I mean people in the front lines like their their lives are so um, so much under pressure you know they're really like fighting these projects it's like an all day every day kind of thing like they don't have a break and it it can be like they can face like violent um repression as well like the communities in the sparrows have like faced like death threats and intimidations and um harassments and yeah uh physical assaults so it's um it's really really tough going so i think anything that we can do in solidarity with them is really important yeah, I think people would be amazed at the things, like you said, that they find in their own backyard um, mm -hmm. once they start looking. Because, I mean, I live in a, you know, medium-sized town in Texas at the moment. And even right outside of this town, which is an hour north of Austin, um, there's, like, strip mining happening mm -hmm. in, for, for, you know, a, like a rock quarry. But um, it's yeah. still amazing. You think these things happen somewhere else, but it's literally right here. And, and there is um, resistance to it from the local community and mm -hmm. um, elsewhere in the US, you know, where you wouldn't think this kind of stuff would still be going on. There's, you know, resistance to lithium mining and um, totally, you know, of yeah. course the water pipeline, the pipelines in the water, but um, yeah, it's just uh, get to know your own community and kind of see, you know, what is there. And if, if you don't have anything, then yeah, kind of look around you and see who you can help. But um, I agree this, this work can be tiring and, um definitely need some or people could definitely use some extra help so yeah definitely, definitely. okay well um i guess if there's nothing else um we'll move on to our green life hack um, portion of the show and this is where we just share with our listeners one thing they can do or resource or product um, that might help them live more sustainably um, so would you like to start with a, a green life hack 
Yeah, sure. Um, I guess like when I'm yeah saying this, then I always say like, yeah, try to follow what brings you joy, you know, as well. Like, I, I don't think it should feel like a chore. Like, you know, I think we should definitely have fun, like with the stuff as well. Um, and for me, like, it's definitely like finding out a way where you can do stuff collectively or like in a local community near you or like I mean it can be anything whether it's like a community garden or like a seed swap or if you're not into like growing stuff like even a clothes swap or you know like th there's like so much that we can do to build community as well you know so it's not just about the um the life hack that we're doing but like if we can do it together I think that's really powerful and uh really important as well yeah <laughs> Yeah, and it, it um, helps fight this capitalist idea that we're all individuals and have to do everything on our own and, you know, totally, yeah. buy more so we're self-sufficient. It's like, we can just help each other out. <laughs> totally, yeah. Like thinking about like repair cafes and all this kind of yes. stuff. There's so many amazing things going on like all around the place. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, mine uh, is, is sort of related to that. Um, so last month we spoke with someone whose Green Life Hack was um, an app that is popular in Europe and I don't, I don't know uh, some parts of the US that you can um, actually contact uh, businesses who are giving away food for a very reduced price yes. or free so, um, at the end of the day when it's kind of gone off um, restaurants and things like that. Um, and so I found this website called sharewaste.com where you can do the same things but with your like yard waste or compost materials food waste. So um, I actually looked and it is, there are a few people in my area that collect that stuff. So like um, right now I'm living with others who do not compost and <laughs> I used to compost. So I would like to at least have a way to get rid of that stuff sustainably and not just throw it away. Um, so you can collect this stuff and give it to someone who could use it for their compost bin or their chickens or something. And again, it kind of um, is a community activity that you can do to help keep, help someone else and help keep things out of landfill. So um, yeah, that is my green life. <laughs> Love it. Um, yeah. So, where can we find you or your work online? Yeah. So, I guess um, I use Twitter a lot. So, yeah, you can find me Vicenza Trepice on on Twitter. Um, and as well, um, through my like academic work, um, I'm part of a art artist kind of a research collective called Extracting Us. And we have um, an online exhibition up at the minute called Despite Extractivism, which kind of looks at feminist political ecology and extractivism. Um, and I created some counter maps um, of the Sparrens based on my research. So that's the kind of idea of like making maps by and for the people in the area rather than these extractive maps, which are, you know, by the state or corporation. Um, so yeah, that's that's online at the minute. And then there's like loads of amazing contributions from people looking at these issues like all around the world. Like there's um, Russia, Brazil, um, yeah, all around the place. So I definitely recommend uh, checking that out. Great. And we will link to that on, on the show notes if you're interested in this and any of the things we've talked about um, on throughout the conversation. And you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, although Facebook is currently um, being problematic. Um, and you can also find us on YouTube and anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Uh, you should be able to find the show and stream us, subscribe to us, share us, like us, give us five stars, whatever they let you do. Um, if you have any ideas for upcoming episodes, uh, feel free to send that our way via the website or any of the social media pages. 
Um, and you can find me personally on Instagram and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me. Um, again, thank you for listening and thank you so much for being on Vincenza and um, have a great rest of your day. Oh, thank you. <laughs>